0: Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our listeners. Uh, and Welcome to the people that now watch us on YouTube. Thanks for doing that. Um, another episode of our podcast, The Edge. Um, we've got a guest here today, Sam Cheetham. Um, I'd like to start off before I ask Sam the first question, so give him a bit of prep time. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, we've had some record months over the last couple of months. We've hit some big numbers. Um, it's been just over a year and a bit now that we've been running the podcast, so we're, we're really happy with everyone listening. Um, if there's anybody who wants to come on as a guest, feel free to reach out. Um, but Sam, I'll circle back to you. First question, same as always, um, give us a bit of history about yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how your journey started and then how you got to where you are today.
1: Thanks for having me, Jay. Um, so my journey is still starting. Uh, I'm 23 years old. I graduated college uh, 10 months ago. Uh, And I'm in my first job out of college. Uh, So I'm from North Carolina on the East Coast of the United States. And I've just moved to Salt Lake City, Utah uh, for this first role. Uh, I work with ReliantQuest as a cybersecurity sales rep. Uh, And it's been a mission of mine in this first year to build a network in our industry, learn everything that I can. And I've created a podcast uh, without the waves that yours has, but um, a live show on LinkedIn where I've interviewed some people in the industry, such as Ron Sharon. Uh, Gary Ruddle, Dr. Cheryl Cooper, and a few others. Um, And it's been a really positive experience so far, just kind of dipping my feet in. So uh, I love being part of things like your show.
0: Brilliant. I I think, to be honest, you're probably the youngest guest we have on or have had on so far. And it's really good to have somebody on that's kind of starting their journey because you have a very different view of the the way things are. And and I think that's really good. But before we kind of get into technical questions... You're a michael jordan fan right being from north carolina you must be and i'm 20 i'm
1: 23 years old too so it's a good year to be a michael jordan fan absolutely i mean he people he... told me it was my my jordan year i don't know about that
0: oh i mean i love basketball i've got to luckily enough got to see some some good players i got to see kobe play uh shaq uh lebron i never got to see jordan play because the one time i had an opportunity the tickets were thousands and thousands of dollars um, and and I and I just couldn't afford it at the time. Um, okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper then. I guess you, you're new into the industry. What was it that kind of? Well, why this industry? Why did you choose to do what you're doing?
1: So I have a marketing background and a sales degree, um, and you know I was going to go into some industry. Obviously, you want to say you're a cybersecurity person, not a salesperson, so that people are a little bit less scared of you. Um, And when I was in school, I did a uh, sort of a faux sales competition where we pretended to sell a cybersecurity product. Um, And I was very fascinated with the ins and outs of it. And the reason I chose this path was that I have a fascination and a a passion for helping people. And some people that really need help right now are folks who are or companies who are being targeted by cybersecurity threats. Um, It's an area where I can learn a lot of things really fast. Um, and also the area where I was offered a job. So, uh, you know, part of that is, is by choice and part of it's by chance. But uh, I've really enjoyed all the different intricacies of our industry so far.
0: I, I think, to be honest, a lot of us have got into the roles we're in by chance. I mean, I I went to university um, before you were born, actually, which is a scary thought. Um, so I went to university. I studied mathematics. Um and and kind of in my final year of university, I pivoted a little bit and did computers because they were new back then. And then I started playing games. I really enjoyed playing computer games. And my first role really came about from playing computer games. That gave me the opportunity to learn how to network and configure computers and obviously build the hardware, get more memory, get more, faster processes for my games to run better. And then my mum convinced me that there was no money in playing games, uh, which I don't think I've ever forgiven her for um and then i pivoted over to do what i do now so i think a lot of a lot of guests we've had on the podcast have, have really fallen into to the role by accident and and i guess my advice for anyone starting out kind of like yourself is do something you love do something you enjoy because you're going to be doing it a lot of the time um but let's talk a little bit about kind of what you're seeing in the industry there's a lot of noise uh, about things like ransomware and and zero trust do you hear stuff about that? And what are your what what are your thoughts on it? Do you think really zero trust is a buzzword, or do you see people actually doing stuff with it?
1: Well, like cybersecurity has been called twelve different things over the last ten years. I think zero trust will be called a lot of different things, but I think the concept is here to stay. Uh, I think zero trust is the future of cybersecurity. I think it's becoming comparatively easier and easier to impersonate someone to. Uh, become a bad actor and zero trust is the philosophy that uh, everything and everyone can be a bad actor or can be a threat to your environment and so i don't trust any of it you know i'm gonna verify no matter who it is you know i uh, double you know checked the link before i joined this zoom call to record a podcast with you when i get a confirmation email i think am i sure i ordered something uh, i think i trust very little uh, and eventually we'll all trust zero
0: I think that's a really good mindset. Um, I I was on a a presentation recently and we were talking about how the world's changed and how a lot of what me and John done in our careers was based on trusting everybody. I mean, we created global networks, either MPLS or later on SD-WAN and you would just put people on your network. I mean, I even remember anybody visiting just came in a meeting room and plug the network cable in. They got an IP address and they were on your network. And there was no, I don't think it was safe back then, but we we just assumed it would. So it's it's really good to hear people that are gonna kind of be the next generation like yourself talking about the mindset shift and having that mindset shift because it's hard to make a change if people don't think of it in a different way. Um, John, I don't know if you wanna add anything. No, I think that's
2: that's a, a nice jumping off point. Uh, let's talk a little bit about detect and response I know you work at a company that does that um what are you seeing out there as you as you talk with customers um what what are they interested in and and what uh verticals are are you um, seeing the most uptake on
1: so as far as detection goes, uh, you know I think the traditional way is okay I can detect events or logs from you know one tool or one access point into my network, into my environment. Uh, But now with so many different things going on, you know, it's not always just a brute force password hack. Maybe now there's a QR code that they're trying to use on you for phishing, or maybe there's a construction worker who's not really a construction worker that's just kind of grinning and waiting outside the door. I think there's a lot more ways that you can attack an environment if you are a bad actor. So Rather than just monitoring one to two tools, one to two endpoints, a lot of the uh, customers and prospects I talk with are trying to fortify an entire environment. Where is everywhere that someone could try to penetrate my environment? And how do I see all that without having to hire 10,000 people to be watching all the time? And in terms of response, I think that's where automation comes in because there are so many attacks. Uh, one One of the organizations we work with Um, said that they get over 6,000 logs per day coming into their security tools, right? Now, 3,000 of those are false positives because uh, John and Jay forget their password every other day. Uh, You know, 2,000 of those are duplicates because we have so many endpoints we're monitoring that if I do something that's big enough, it's going to hit multiple of those endpoints. And only a few really need to be handled. So I think a lot of organizations are looking at how can I automate out those alerts that aren't worth my team's time? so that I can be focusing on the bad actors I truly need to be going up against.
2: Is it mostly are you seeing a lot of uh attacks cloud based or is it on prem where you have somebody, you know, might get in through VPN, move laterally through the organization, they're they're probably st- sticking around. I think the the time to dwell time is upwards of 300 days. Um What kind of, when you work with customers, uh, are they mostly interested in more cloud or is it on-prem or is it both?
1: I think, you know, we've already talked about quite a few both words, but I'll give you one more, John, and that's cloud migration, right? A lot of organizations understand that even if they're not attempting to store all their data in the cloud, they can be vulnerable through the cloud. So they don't really have a choice but to migrate not only some of their data, but also some of their defenses to the cloud when they think about security. So I think cloud security is sort of top of mind. Obviously there's a few, you know, primary vendors. You've either got the the Microsoft cloud, the Google cloud or the AWS cloud. Um, And each of those kind of have their own varieties, but whichever one you're migrating to, it's definitely top of mind for those organizations to be, you know, how do I have defense on that as soon as I migrate to it? Because that's a vulnerability I don't know how to to defend yet and it could be exploited more easily.
0: Yeah, myself and John spoke on a CSA webinar recently where we talk about the risk of cloud. And one of the things we talked about was there's no standardization. So you've got multiple clouds and they're growing. I mean, there are kind of, as you mentioned, the top three, but there are there are more and more growing. People are seeing that the migration is happening. So obviously companies are moving and, and supplying those services because they see that there's a benefit in doing that. But there's no real kind of standardization across all the clouds so for me that brings a risk in itself because if you are a mid-sized company and you want to migrate some of your services to the cloud you may have your DevOps team putting it in some places you may have a certain other team putting it somewhere else but you can't necessarily hire the, the the right number of staff to deal with all those separate clouds it used to be everything was in your data center and your data center was probably either in the finance office or a little bit after that, it moved into a, an air-conditioned room, you could walk along the corridor, you could physically touch and see your equipment. Therefore, I, re- I remember a story where somebody clicked on a ransomware by accident, email server started going crazy. Well, what did you do? You just went in and unplugged the network cable. Suddenly, you f- you hadn't resolved the problem, but at least you stopped it spreading. You don't have the luxuries of of doing that anymore. And I think we're inevitably going to continue that move to the cloud. I mean, we, we, we've seen reports recently where there's talk about people coming back in. Uh, and I think there may be some systems that people are like, OK, we need them more secure. We will pull them back in. But I still think longer term, the clouds here to stay. It's not it's not going away. Um, and we will get more vendors and there'll be more innovation and we'll have people competing against the large three, I would say. Yeah. Um, and
2: let, let me add let me add something there as well. I mean, the, one of the other challenges is that IT organizations, uh, let's call it a Microsoft, uh, a shop that, you know, they they built out all their infrastructure based on you know Microsoft tooling and um, they get an ELA. CIOs, you know, is told, hey, I got to I got to be cloud first. So they move to Azure and um, that's the focus for the IT department. Um, IT department probably reports, security probably reports into the IT department, uh, but and they're like, hey, cloud first, we're gonna focus on Azure, that's where we're gonna put all the training. Um, and then you have another part of the organization that may not be reporting into IT that decides, hey, we're gonna build an application, let's call it an e-commerce application on AWS. Um, they don't report in because they're part of the go-to-market, they're part of, of sales, and um, that reporting line isn't uh, there. So what happens is IT focuses on Azure, yet you have AWS, um, and you don't have that security on you know the AWS side where money is being made because it's e-commerce. I think that's a growing challenge these days um, as well, and you have your on-prem. It's... To, to say that you're going to be you know cloud first and we're going to focus on one cloud, I think is wrong. I think multi-cloud is a reality. And um, the best you can do is start to focus on finding tools that can you know remediate things in Azure or on-prem or AWS um, so you're not spreading that, that talent across those clouds. I think that's a challenge that everyone's trying to deal with uh, right now is how do you figure that out? And where do you find the talent?
1: Yeah, great question. Hard to even know where to start with that. But I think, you know, vendors five years ago were selling a SIM, right? And they said everything goes to the SIM, but that didn't happen. So then they said, okay, we have an EDR. Everything goes to the EDR. That also didn't happen. Now uh, we have XDR, which is supposed to get everything from the SIM, from the EDR, from the cloud, from the firewall. That's going to get everything and that's working right now. But that's not to say that in two more years, there won't be three more kinds of security that aren't feeding into that. And then we'll have a new tool called the balloon animal or whatever they're going to call it then. Uh, And the idea is that everything will feed into that tool. But all those things and all those vendors are coming from the same perspective of um, how can we keep it secure yet simplify.
0: So as someone that kind of works with threat response where do you see the most incidents coming from I mean we've read reports recently that ransomware is on the on the kind of decline which I am not 100% convinced about but is it ransomware is it malware where do you, where do you deal with like the most incidents the most attacks coming from So the most
1: number of incidents is phishing right? There are so many ways that you can get fished or social engineered, right? You probably click on, I don't know, between five and 40 links per day if you work on your computer for a nine to five job. Um, and you get familiar with that, right? So when one comes, you might not think twice before you click on it. And that's part of a lot of the training that, uh, you know, security organizations are doing for their other employees that vendors are doing for security organizations is, you know, how do we not click on that link? How do we spot something that doesn't feel quite right? And there's vendors now, including the organization I work where uh, we have a phishing analyzer. So it's able to detect, understand all the links. It's able to see if someone clicks on one of those links that's not originally from the organization and you know, isolate a host, ban a hash if you've accidentally given it access to something it shouldn't have. Um, so of course there are organizations defending against phishing but there's also new kinds of phishing all the time I mean six months ago I wouldn't have uh, thought twice before scanning any QR code ever because it looks fun I mean it's fun to click on you get to scan it with your little camera and then you get to do two clicks and you're on a fun website that you know gives you a free song for the day off Apple music or it lets you connect to someone on LinkedIn or puts their contact in your phone but now you know, if an unlabeled QR code that that sends up red flags for me, that's like,, well, I want to know what this is first before I, I think about clicking on it. And uh, I think phishing is something that's evolving so quickly and something that so many people are being tested against that we can't expect everyone not to click that link every time.
0: I, I think it's a real challenge because I've spent maybe 10 plus years getting people to do training on things like phishing and just cyber in general even before it was called cyber and we would run a test every year and we would get the same number of people and normally the same people fail every year and yeah. we were trying to make the training a bit more exciting because I, I, I fundamentally think if you just do it once a year people just go click 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 they don't really read it they just take the exam and they pass it needs to be and I don't want to necessarily punish people. I think I need to phrase this carefully because it needs to be fun, but there also needs to be some kind of way of stopping people continually doing it uh, rather than there necessarily be, you've clicked on the link, you're fired. Because there are a lot of people that work in, in I, I've come from manufacturing organizations, legacy equipment, equipment, People that have worked there for 40 plus years of their career aren't that familiar with computers and maybe even panic a little bit if they get an email or if it looks like it's come from the boss or it's a HR thing and it says, do this, do that, do this. They may only check their emails once a month on like a shared machine and and all of those kind of things. And it's kind of in general, those users that tend to give away the details a little bit more. Although I have seen very senior management do the same thing. Is there anything you can think of rather than just get people to repeat the same kind of boring training every year? Is there anything you can think of? And I'll ask John this as well after um, to make it a bit more fun to make it so you actually learn because they are getting really difficult. Like they've gone from somebody in Africa wanting to give you $10 million with loads of spelling mistakes and very easy to spot. to now I get text messages from the tax office in the UK on the date my tax is due saying your tax is due, can you just click this link? It's getting really difficult. So how, how do you suggest maybe we make it easier for people to learn is the best way, I think.
1: Uh, two things popped into my head when you said that. One is zero trust, right? We don't trust links. Hover over the link, see what the link is, see if the link is from the organization that it said it was from. I mean, that's a that's a test every time. You can do it on your phone, you can do it on any device you can hover over and just make sure that uh, if I get a link from uh, j.com that it's actually j.com slash taxes are due, not uh, john.org slash 2340619. Like, what is that? Uh, the other thing is, you know, train people when they're young. People are nine years old, you're getting an iPhone, right? That didn't used to happen. And I think if, if that comes as part of the first time you experience technology, it's going to be stuck with you a little bit better. Um, it's a lot easier to train a 10-year-old on something than it is to train a 54-year-old employee that's been doing the same job for 25 years just because they're they're subject to learning new things. And part of, hi, child, I'm going to you know get you an iPhone, should be understand that there are parts of having a phone that aren't safe. And of course, social media is part of that, but also links from people you don't know, sites that you've never heard of before can be bad actors. Um, and a, a tiny bit of cybersecurity awareness training for nine-year-olds might just go a long way.
0: Yeah. I. I so, John, what do you think we should do? Because no doubt I saw you nodding when I oh, was talking about people failing every year. What do you yeah. think we should do?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I was at a conference, uh, maybe it was about a year ago, and there was a company that presented, and their solution was to gamify it. So instead of having to do the common let's call it hr training where it's the same for harassment the same for uh, all the other types of hr things where you you know you spend 45 minutes and someone's talking and it's clicky clicky on the multiple choice questions um they came up with a great idea to gamify the whole thing so it's a continuous game and and as you start to level up uh you get better at it you you learn more about phishing you learn more about some of the cyber attacks out there um, I thought it was a brilliant uh, solution, a brilliant suggestion. Because so often in cyber, it's all about technology. It's all about hey, EDR, MDR, AI, blah blah blah, firewall this, firewall that. Um, and instead, you know, they're going after the weakest link, and that's the human side. Um, it's a company called, I believe, it was called Hawks Hunt, uh, out of Sweden or Finland, one of the Nordic countries. Um, but it was a brilliant response to, hey, we've got a problem. Uh, and, and and the humans are the problem. So let's train them and and let's do it in a way that's fun, exciting, and and not uh that standard 45 minutes of HR talk. So that that would be my solution and and leverage it with the kids. Uh, get it into schools. I think, you know, to your point there, Sam. Um more training in schools or more training at a younger age it it helps develop what we've you know we've talked about at digital citizenry on this podcast often and um we really need a program around that we really need to train the the generation coming up because their minds are still malleable they they and they they suck in this amount of, of technology and information um And if you do it at an early age, they get it. And I think that's a huge component of this cybersecurity problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think technology and children is one of those things we need to concentrate on. I I remember having to have conversations with some of my friends' children when they they were relatively young about whatever you kind of take photos of and, and put out there on the internet is there forever. I mean, and it and it will spread really quite rapidly. So you need to be careful. So they 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 are starting to understand the risks. I mean, we've talked, as you know, John, before on the podcast about children needing MFA to play games and all those kind of things. And I think for me. We don't want to frighten people, but we do need to explain, and it's the same with children of, of everything, even if they're putting their hand in the fire or whatever, you don't necessarily want to frighten them, but you do want to warn them of, of the consequences. Um. So Sam, before we get on to some questions about your LinkedIn, because I, I see some of the stuff you post I wanted to talk to you about, you said yourself, you've recently kind of got in to cyber, so from someone that's relatively new, because it's pointless, me and John sometimes trying to advise people what to do when we've kind of been embedded for a long time. What would be your recommendations to someone that's trying to get in? What What did you do that worked well to kind of find your first job? And what do you think you did that necessarily didn't do well? So kind of what advice can you offer?
1: I am lucky that I get to advise a lot of people being someone on LinkedIn who talks about cybersecurity, a lot of people send me direct messages and say, Sam, you don't know me, but I really want a job in cybersecurity. How do I help? And the way I frame it for these people is that you probably already know, or you will soon know the person who's going to give you your next job. And applying for uh, 200 plus jobs using LinkedIn Apply, using Indeed Apply, using you know sites that apply is probably only going to yield you three to four interviews. Uh, The the success rates are are low and they're getting lower. Uh, But the way that a lot of people that I know found their jobs is by knowing the right people. So having a presence on LinkedIn, having a presence in the community that you want to get the job in and meeting and networking with people who either have your dream job, hire for your dream job or manage the people who do your dream job is the way to get in. You know, people have kinship towards other people, even if they don't know them yet. You know, Jay and John, I've never met either of you before today, but if one of you sent me a friendly message and said, Sam, I really want to get a job like yours, you know, just my instinct is going to be to tell you how I got my job, to recommend you, to think of you the next time someone at my work says, oh, we're hiring. And I think making those connections, regardless of how personal they are, obviously the personal, the better, um, is the right way to start. So I've coached a few people to you know, make a short list, make a a list of 10 organizations that you think you would want to work for that are hiring and go connect with the cybersecurity manager, go connect with the help desk manager, connect with every recruiter you can find, and then find someone who does your job today and say to those people, can I have a few minutes of your time? I want to learn about your company. I want to learn about your job because I want to do something similar. And a lot of those people are going to tell you, yes, you're going to get a lot of good insight. You're going to get some favor. And likely someone is going to try to help you. And a lot of times you do need that help because just applying for jobs is not a good way to get jobs anymore, which is baffling to me, but that's the way I understand it to work.
0: Uh, I think there's there's two things I want to pull out from that or at least comment on and then I'll, I'll hand the floor to Jordan. Number one is I got my job doing what I'm doing now because of the people I've worked with in the past right? And I believe John did as well. And John can comment on that in a a second. But also, up until I got this role, I wasn't that active on LinkedIn, I saw LinkedIn as a place that you would go to get a job. And I never made any connections, because the only people that ever wanted to connect to me, when I was in the corporate world were someone that wanted to sell me stuff. Um, And I didn't want to connect to people. Now I've probably got 10 times more followers than I did then. And I have some people that approach me and say, I like what you're doing. I've listened to your podcast or I've seen what you've done on LinkedIn. Could you probably help me with a role? Can you help look at my CV? Can you do this? And it's getting to the point where it's, it's actually quite busy to keep up with all of those. But I tend to try with the people that have approached me in in a nice way, whether I know them or not. If they've approached me and said, I really like what you're doing, can you offer me some advice? Can you mentor me? I've even had phone calls with people that I've never met before to try and help them. That is a good approach. What doesn't work is just sending your CV to me and saying, do you have any jobs? Now, please put some effort in for anyone listening. I'm more than happy to sacrifice some of my time outside of working hours to talk to you, to talk through your CV, to possibly tune it a bit, to talk about Roles in cyber or roles in networking or infrastructure—I have no problem doing that because people have done that for me in the past, and I've valued that. But if you're just going to send me your CV and say, "Give me a job," and not even in—that doesn't even happen all the time. Maybe I just get a CV with no comments. That's not going to work. Um, John, I pass to you. I, I believe you did get your job through knowing people, right? Here. Yeah, that's
2: that's exactly right, and it it goes a little further than that. It, every person you meet, uh, whether it's on LinkedIn or uh, in face, face to face or at a conference, or, you know, it could be meeting a vendor um, you've got to look at them and, 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 you know, you've got to kind of go with the impression that you want to be their friend. You want to, you want to help them out or they're going to help you out because at the end of the day, it, these things all kind of come back. Um, and Jane and Mai's, industry, surprisingly, you think it's large. It's actually really small. It's a small niche of people, and um, they rotate through companies. Uh, But everyone, if you make a good impression, everyone's got everyone else's back. Uh, And what you do in the past, a lot of times comes back uh, to the present. A great example of this, I was down in San Jose this week, um, meeting with a a gentleman uh, for, you know, Jay, Jay and my company that we work for, and that provides our paycheck uh recently got purchased by uh, a large networking company um and um, so I'm sitting down with him having a conversation first time I've I've met him uh and we're at dinner and he tells me this story uh that he met some guy from Columbia Sportswear and um he you know this the story to him was amazing and he keeps telling it again and again to other people and uh pretty much goes like Hey, uh, we've got this product, uh, this controller uh, type situation, um, and he asked the person from Columbia Sportswear, he "Goes, how often do you want your engineers to interact with that?" And the person said, "I never want them to. I want them to do it as infrastructure as code. Uh, I want them to stay away from the clicky clicky and and just basically do this uh, uh, through a get you know repo, so on and so forth." Um, and he goes, oh, and I said, oh, really? Who was that person? And, and you know, when was that interaction? And he goes, um, about 2018. I said, I looked at him and said, you know who that was? He's like, no, who was that? I said, that was me. So these conversations come back again and again with you. Uh, so it's always important to make a good impression, uh, to reach out to people, because you you will be surprised in the industry how small it is and how tight it is and how many interactions uh people have between companies so that's that's my response that's my recommendation always go make friends um and um leave a good impression don't don't burn bridges
0: yeah and i i think you've highlighted something else for me and it's sincerity i mean we we've only met twice i think
2: yeah, yeah twice in in in
0: in, for in a reels, year yes in a year Um, Coming up third time soon, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've been around long enough and I think you've been around long enough that I knew within 10 minutes I'm going to like this person because you tell the truth. You're honest, you're sincere, you're empathetic. Whereas there are people in the industry that I've bumped into that somebody will have a completely different impression than I will have because they've not necessarily been truthful with everybody. So just be cautious of that. Um, okay, so let's get on to kind of one of the things you you've got on LinkedIn and it, it you talk about burnout prevention, and we talk a lot on this podcast about burnout, and I'm going to try and phrase this as well as I possibly can so that I don't offend anybody, but you're you've just said you're 23 years old and you're already considering burnout prevention. Now, I had no idea what burnout even meant when I was 23 years old. I didn't really know what it was until I was probably in my 30s. And I suffered it because I'd been running at 150 miles per hour for years and years and years and then suddenly bang, I was burnt out and I didn't know what it was. I was exhausted. I would go on a holiday and not really recover. My mind wouldn't recover. Um, and I didn't understand why. And and I'm not very good at relaxing. I'll be honest enough to say that. I, I, when I go on holiday, I tend to want to be very, very active. And I go hiking and we go walking and I want to see things and I want to experience everything. I'm one of those people that in fact, my girlfriend says, I've got a grasshopper mind because it bounces all over the place. And I want to do everything. We're, we're going to Jordan in the next couple of months. And I've already got the guidebook and I've already gone through and marked everything off. So I've got that kind of want to do everything personality. Um, But it does concern me a little bit that somebody at 23 years old even knows what burnout is or even is considering how to prevent it. So I guess my question is, why is it something that you even think about? And then leading on to that, what do you do to prevent it?
1: So a lot of people in our industry are burnt out. I learned that pretty fast. A lot of people are exhausted. They do the same task over and over. If you're an IT help desk analyst, you've seen 10,000 of the same tickets in the last 25 working days, and they're burnt out. They're frustrated. Um, at ReliQuest, where I work, we have a mental performance coach. Uh, his name is Darren, we call him DMAC. Um, And he shares a lot of good research on how to have a better mindset, how to not burn out. Uh, and one of the most fascinating things he shared is, you've both heard work-life balance. Yeah. And he actually disputes work-life balance in favor of a term called work-life presence. So work-life presence is having clearly defined stretch goals that are important to you, both in your personal life and your professional life. So I want to you know, meet X number of people. I want to have X number of LinkedIn connections. I want to close X number of sales. But I also want to run a triathlon this year. I want to spend more time with the people that matter to me this year. And I want to play softball with my friends this year. There are things both that I do at work and that I do that are not at all about work that I'm striving for. And having the presence to be part of both of those things helps you from thinking about work when you're at home trying to go to bed at night. And that in turn can help you from burning out. So obviously, I've I like my job. I'm fortunate to have a job that I like that challenges me that's different every day. But some people don't have that. And the way to balance that is to have things that aren't at all about your job, that are your goals, that are important to you, that you're going to be thinking about and be present with those other things when you're not at work. So that can make you a better brother or sister or spouse or daughter or parent, whatever you may be doing is better when you're able to be present at your work. You can still do your work well and then leave it at work and be present with other things that don't have a thing to do with work. I know people that are you know, on their Slack channel or on their team's channel at 2 a.m., you know, thinking about what's going to happen the next day. And that's how you burn out. It's by not having another piece that is just as important to you as your work.
2: I
0: don't know I think, if I
1: answered your question, but that's where my mind sits.
0: No, I, I, I think it's very good that businesses are are starting to consider it because I, I've managed teams pretty much all of my career, and it was definitely something that was on my mind having gone through it myself. So we do work in an industry where we tend to work in a job we're very passionate about, and therefore it's very hard to, to kind of let go of that. But what I used to try and do with my team was if they put in extra hours at a particular time, because we had an intense project, or we had to work late, or we got compromised, or whatever it might be, try and give them back time, give them back, let them spend time with their families, it was very important. I used to give my team their birthday off every year. Um, Not as holiday, I just didn't didn't let them work on their birthday. And And if they were married or in a relationship, I let them take their partner's birthday off as well to go and spend time with their partners. And yes, I couldn't do it if they had children because if they had one, two, three, four children, I might be giving them six days off a year and that gets a bit problematic. Um, But I I would try and encourage them to go away um, and spend time away. However, even I struggle now when things get really quite intense and when there's a lot going on, it's really hard to kind of take that separation. Um, but John, I don't know if you want to add anything to that No I
2: love that I love that concept Sam that you just brought up I mean it reminds me of how you know traditional uh work is is treated. I don't know if you watch the show Severance it's on Apple TV uh, but essentially the concept is is when you go to work uh, your mind is wiped and then when you come out of work you, you know you're restored so uh, you don't disturb that work. And life separation. Um, and that's honestly how businesses treat, uh, maybe I'm generalizing, but that's a lot of times how they treat work is work is a separate realm. Life is a separate realm. Don't interact the two. And if you interact one or the other, it's it's, you know, especially if it's your personal life bleeding into your work life, you know, we got to have this hard conversation. But I think your 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 concept there is essentially right, that you can't separate the two, the two bleed over, um, maybe it's work over to life and life over to work, uh, and trying to integrate the two and, and not create that separation, I think it's a very important concept, and um, being present is another conversation a lot of people are talking about. So I love that concept, and um, honestly, I'm going to steal it, so... <laughs>
1: Yeah, John, you have to set those those clearly defined stretch goals. You gotta know why you're not like why you don't wanna be at work right now because you got something else to do, and you gotta know why you wanna be at work when you got something else you could be doing. You know, it, it attaches meaning to to both working and not working. Yeah. And that can keep you from burning out.
0: Okay, I think that's a really good topic. I could spend hours talking about that, but I wanna ask you kind of one more question about like your LinkedIn before we get onto fun stuff, and that's support girls on the run. Give give us a little bit about what that is and why you're doing it.
1: So uh, Madison, my partner, my girlfriend, uh, is a runner. Um, She has two different sized feet and she hasn't had equal opportunities to run in her life. And she is running a marathon, uh, the New York Marathon in November, uh, on behalf of Girls on the Run. And she and I are both raising money for that organization. Uh, Girls on the Run helps... Young girls and women to learn skills in communication, friendship, and do so through running while they're in school. Um, And it's a great organization and it's something that I personally contribute to, that Madison contributes to, um, and that uh, I definitely support. So, you know, when people go to my profile, I want them to see Girls on the Run, learn about it, support it. There's a lot of different ways you can support. I do have that campaign on top of my LinkedIn. Of course, you can make a contribution or a donation if you. Feel willing, but there's girls on the run chapters all over the United States that need volunteers. There's a lot of ways that you can help. Uh, and it's a, a cause that I feel very passionate about.
0: I think that kind of pivots back to the previous conversation about like this work life balance situation is you've yeah. clearly got something that you're very passionate about that is outside of work. And that obviously takes up time, but it gives you that kind of freedom. In, in your mind to, to think about things other than work now I've never been able to run I, I for whatever reason it hurts my knees and I know John I believe you used to run before you cycled um but but I'm I am I like hiking I like going out and in a few weeks we're going out so I think that's a really good cause um okay so some fun questions because I've looked down at the clock as always time's flying um your Profile picture is a picture of you with an arch in the background. And I love traveling. And there are certain areas of the US that I'd really like to travel to. Where is that? Because it looks spectacular. Uh
1: so that picture is uh the Delicate Arch at Arches National Park, and that is in South Utah, about a couple hours drive south of where I live. Um, it's in Moab, Utah. Uh there are five uh United States national parks in Utah. And that's one of them. And uh, it's all red rock sculptures. It's a very beautiful place to visit.
0: Yeah, see, I've been to the Grand Canyon, which was on my bucket list. But there's a a whole bunch of places in the US that I'd love to just get a car or get a camper van and and, and drive around and have a look around. And I'm sure at some point I will. Um, But I'll ask one more question before I pass to John. It's obviously got to be about food. Um, I used to ask, what was the best food you've ever eaten? But I don't do that anymore. It's going to be, what has been your best food experience? And that could be because it was a picnic next to that arch, for instance, and it was spectacular, or it could be something you've done with family or friends. But what was your best food experience?
1: Uh, I love to cook. So my best uh, food experiences have been cooking. And uh, my best dish is uh, homemade chicken alfredo. So I'll, uh, I won't go into too much detail. I don't want to, don't want to give away the secret recipe, but uh, it's it's quite good. And it's a weekly dish around our house.
0: Nice. So we're all going to be at RSA, I believe. So bring some with you and we'll try it. Deal. It sounds good. <laughs> but John, I'll let you wrap up with a final question.
2: Yeah. So you've obviously moved from Utah. You previously lived, I believe, in North Carolina. Um, do you have a preference? Are You've become more of a West Coast or, you know, out here in the, in the, in the high desert or, or, uh, North Carolina is, is home or or what do you, what do you, what's your preference?
1: I really like Utah. I've had a great experience here so far. There's so many new things to do. Uh, I love to ski and we've had the best winter comfortably of my life, uh, for skiing. Um, and it's given me opportunities to travel places that used to be a really long way away. So, um, I hope to spend a lot more time in the Pacific Northwest, um, and just out West in the next couple of years.
0: So i, so I skiing, that, you, you, sorry, you, go on, jump. I want
2: yeah, I wanted to bring up skiing. Um, what's your favorite mountain in Utah? There's so many to choose from, but uh what's your favorite mountain, where the place to go, and and why? It's a
1: tough choice. And honestly, you can take your pick and I'll be happy with it. Um, I really like Brighton Resort because even when I go on the weekends, there are not a lot of lines. Um I'm a moderate tier skier, uh, so I don't need anything that's too crazy, but it's a lot of fun um at Brighton Resort in the Cottonwood Canyons
0: nice good choice i was gonna say that i've 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 um snowboarded in mammoth before in in, and that's kind of where i first learned properly to snowboard although i'm not very good they've had absolutely record snowfalls have you had similar amounts where you are like crazy crazy like lake tahoe had like 20 30 feet or more
1: yeah we've had a We've had a 700 or 800 inch winter, depending on which resort you, you go to. So uh, it's been a it's been a record setter. I think it's the most in 49 years.
0: It's absolutely crazy because we get like one inch in the UK, and everything stops. And when I mean everything stops, I mean literally no trains, no buses, every, no flights. Everything stops. People panic buy. People go to the shops. They start like stocking their shelves. And and you wake up two days later, and it's gone and i mean i know john you get like ice storms i believe is is what causes most yeah. of your issues
2: yeah well we've we've got a hilly terrain here in portland and uh, ice storms <laughs> they uh, they line the road and and yeah you you're not going anywhere um but yeah the, the snow and Jay, I i don't know you if you're familiar with the differences of snow uh, throughout the united states um as you, the closer you are to the ocean the more water content you have in the snow uh so in utah uh, when they get snow, it's this incredible fresh powder. uh, And it just, it's the most amazing thing to ski on. It's like uh, skiing on a cloud. So uh, I think uh, Sam's probably got his snorkel out there with the amount of of powder that he's
0: working with. (laughs) So Sam, I really want to thank you for coming on. It's been a great conversation, uh, some insightful stuff. Um, We'd love to get you back at some point, but I, I really want to thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks to both of you as well, if anyone um, needs help in their job search, uh, gets a headache or a concussion and realizes they want to talk to a cybersecurity vendor, uh, or I can help you in any other way, you can find me on LinkedIn at Sam Cheatham, uh, and I'll be glad to help. Thanks.
0: Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening.